Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to everyone. And thank you if you moved from a service into the third service. We really appreciate it. We'd have a very manageable day with a lot of visitors, so thank you. Uh, welcome to all our guests. We're glad you spent Easter with us. And I just want to share something with you. I became a Christian at 21 years old, which I, means I spent a lot of days like this in religious services growing up where I learned absolutely nothing. I'm just going to be honest, right? I didn't learn about God's love, his plan for the human race, his plan for history. I didn't learn anything. Now, granted, maybe I wasn't listening, but nothing ever happened. I was never changed. So I made a pact with God when I became a pastor that I would never let people gather like this, because I know the heroic effort it is to come here and waste your time, okay? So here's what we're going to do this morning. I prepared a message where everybody's going to learn something And then we're going to give God a chance to work on all of us, okay? So uh, we're going to look at Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, where everyone can learn. So the most devout follower of Jesus who reads his Bible and prays, you're going to learn something. Uh, The person who's like kicking the tires in Christianity, walking into this modern building with a cafe and wondering what are they doing in here, reading their Bible, singing these songs, why is there drums? Uh, You're going to learn something. And then the person who doesn't want to be here, but mom said you ain't eating Easter dinner unless you come, you're going to learn something too, all right? Let's be reasonable today, right? Let's let our guards down. And I think if we're honest, if we're intellectual this morning, there's a few things we can agree on. The number one thing we can agree on is that there was in history, I think there's no doubt about it, a weekend that changed the world. And we're all products of it here in the West. 72 hours altered human affairs for all time. If you don't believe that's true, think about the calendar. Now, if you booted up your cell phone today, looked at Google Calendar, wrote a check, looked at the newspaper, it was April 20th, 2014, right? That's A.D., by the way, which is Latin for the year of our Lord, Jesus, the risen one, right? In fact, everything before his life is B.C., before Christ, everything is after is the year of our Lord. Now, if you go to museums or read technical literature, they have this little twist now where it's BCE and ACE, which is before the Common Era or after the Common Era. Guess guess when the Common Era was? Yeah, Jesus. So it really doesn't matter. How about the death of Christ? Again, if you're intellectually honest, it's the most detailed and famous death in all of history. Now, I love to read, and I read in many genres. My favorite genre is biography. I read about five or six a year. I read biographies of rock stars, believe it or not, coaches, athletes, generals, uh, dudes from history, religious figures. And in most of the biographies, there's always like a page or two about their death. Not much more. Most of it's their accomplishments. Uh, After the resurrection, within 30 years... Uh, There were four biographies on the life of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A third of the material of these biographies deal with this weekend. It's unparalleled in history. Uh, Let's take the cross, for example. The instrument that Jesus died on. It's an icon today. It's holy. Um, You may not know this. It was just an instrument of humiliation and death in the Roman Empire. Uh, The Romans were shrewd. If you were to go to Rome outside the city, you'd see hundreds of crosses where the most defiled and traitors of Roman society would hang on a cross. It was a great deterrent to crime. And they would humiliate people that way. Had it not been for this weekend, 
Uh, the cross would have been a footnote in history. Most of us would have never heard about it. Today, adorned steeples in every city in the world sits atop some of the most beautiful buildings in the world. Some of you are wearing it as jewelry today. And what was a sign of death has now become a sign of hope. The Red Cross, cemeteries have crosses. Uh, we were doing mission work in Cairo, Egypt. If you've ever been there, it's a very repressive place, dark. It looks like a bombed out New York City. A lot of mosques, women, you know, have basically no rights there. And we were working with some poor folks, and we drove through an area called Garbage City. Google it sometime. When you drive through there, it looks like storefronts in some of our neighborhoods with no glass. And literally, there's children sitting on heaps of garbage trying to separate what they can recycle. And I remember after we were there for a while, we drove through Garbage City, and you come out to what's called the Cave Church. Seats 20,000 Coptic Christians on the time that they worship. And when we drove in, we saw this humongous cross. And it was almost like we exhaled. Because again, what was a sign of death became a sign of hope. The third thing I think we'd all agree on is that the birth of Jesus is the most celebrated in the world, isn't it? If you don't think it is, try and think of a runner-up. It's very hard to do, right? 2,000 years, he's still clogging malls and traffic in December here in America and around the world, right? It's the most celebrated birth in history. All for a man that was born into straw poverty in a backwater district of the armpit of the Roman Empire. What's so ironic about this story is that Caesar Augustus, who was the most prominent person in Jesus' day, the ruler of the known world, is only known by the Christmas story we read out of Luke chapter 2 each and every year. All because of this weekend. More cities and towns have been named after he and his followers. More songs have been sung, masterpieces painted, poetry penned, books written, sermons preached, sculptures carved, than of any figure in all of human history. One last point. The empire to which he was born, the Roman Empire, was the greatest empire. Scholars believe it faded out in about the 5th or 6th century. I think it was much longer than that. But the Apostle Paul finally gets to Rome. He's under house arrest. The Colosseum wasn't built yet. They would build it with the money they used to sack Jerusalem and the temple. But the Forum was there, and Nero's Circus was there. Marcus Aurelius already had a statue there. Uh, Again, if you've seen Gladiator, it was, it was just a marvel of the ancient world. If you go to Rome today, and I've been there twice, no one wants to know where Nero's buried. No one puts it on their bucket list so they can learn more about Marcus Aurelius. Why do people go to Rome today? Because Peter's supposedly buried there. And they want to know about Paul. And Marcus Aurelius statues replaced by Peter and Paul, and their statues are all over Rome. And in the emperor's gate at the Colosseum is a cross, not as the instrument of death this time, but as the instrument of hope. And there are more crosses than Rome than any city in the world. How did this happen? Because one weekend made all of this possible. One Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it didn't happen by surprise. Uh, Jesus one day was asked by the religious people who were trying to trick him up. They said, show us a sign. Now, what's so ironic about that is he had shown them many signs. He turned water into wine. He healed people. He fed 5,000. No one had done more signs than Jesus. This time, Jesus said, well, you're not going to get a sign except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, which they knew well. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against this generation and condemn it, because they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now, don't be taken back by Jesus' words that an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. Maybe you look for a sign, right? God, if you're real, write my name in the clouds. Right? Maybe you ask for a sign. God, put money in my bank account or whatever, you know. There's nothing wrong with signs. But what made the Jewish nation so adulterous was that no nation had seen more signs than they. God had chosen them among all the other nations. He brought them out with a mighty hand. He subdued a world power, Egypt and its pharaoh. He brought ten plagues upon them. He parted the Red Sea. He gave them manna in the wilderness. He gave them water out of a rock. He gave them the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. No one had seen more signs than the Jewish nation. And Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn this generation. Now, a little backstory. Jonah's a prophet of Israel. He's told to go to Nineveh. It's the capital of Assyria. And Jonah doesn't want to go because he thinks God will be graceful. And so he goes to a place called Tarshish, which is far west, maybe as far as Spain. And uh, he boards a ship. And while he's on the ship, there's a storm. And he tells the mariners, hey, I'm the problem. Throw me overboard. You guys will be okay. They do. And he says a prayer, I believe, while he's in the water. And I believe he dies. But a fish comes and picks him up and deposits him on dry land, and all of Nineveh, from the king on down to the animals, wear sackcloth and ashes, and they repent. A nation that never had a Bible, never sang a worship song, did not believe in a monotheistic God, repented on an eight-word sermon. And Jesus said, that generation will rise up because no nation has had more signs the nation of Israel. But here's your sign. As Jonah was in the belly of that fish, so I will be in the heart of the earth. So we have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Now, scholars have devoted their entire lives to study about Friday and Sunday. We know a lot about Friday. And we know a lot about Sunday. In fact, that's why most of you are here. But what in the world happened on Saturday? Why does no one write about Saturday? Why is there a Saturday? I'll get to that in a minute. Let me touch briefly on Friday. Friday was the day Jesus was moving toward his entire life. He said, the Son of Man hasn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He told his men many times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. They didn't like that because they wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. He said, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? Somewhere on Friday, they go to the Garden of the Gethsemane. Some of you have been there with us. Beautiful, wonderful place. Uh, the temple would be visible from there. And uh, it's called the place of the press, the olive press. Jesus, while he was in that garden, praying with his disciples, sweated great, great drops of blood. The stress of what he was about to go through was so great that capillaries burst and mixed with water and came through his pores. What was, what was so stressful about what Jesus was going to endure? He went through three trials, a Passover lamb being inspected, proven that he's without blemish, without wrinkle, without spot, 
Uh, Pilate washed his hands and said, I want nothing to do with this man. He's done nothing wrong. The centurion would say later, um, surely this was the son of God. And Jesus, sinless, went to the cross. On the cross, he said seven things. I've taught on this before. Probably the most prolific was this. It is finished. To telestai, it is finished. Paid in full. Here's what it means. There is nothing to be added to it. Can we all agree on one thing today? Just one thing. If someone were to ask you, if you were to die today, where would you go? Because we're all going to live forever. And if your answer was heaven, and someone said, why would you go there? Can we please put an end to the fact that we would go there because we're good? Because I'm a good person? Because I baked cookies for the Girl Scouts, or I walked an old lady across the street, or I gave at the office. Can we, can we end all that? Because all that seems silly when somebody's hanging on a cross, right? To tell us that there's nothing left to be done. The sinless creator of the world was about to do something that our minds will never comprehend. And then Jesus says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says he shrieked it out. And I don't think the, I don't think the translators did it justice. I mean, it was blood curdling. Everyone was to hear it. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why in the world would Jesus say that in front of a crowd? Uh, we say it, right? God, why are you doing this to me? Why, why are bad things happening, God? Why, 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 why? What was Jesus saying there? And why did he want them to know? Well, what Jesus was saying was very interesting. He wasn't saying, my hands, my hands. It wasn't the nails in his hands because his love would have held them there. It wasn't the thorn in his side, or it wasn't my head, my head. It wasn't the crown of thorns on his head. It wasn't, it wasn't any of what Mel Gibson shows us in The Passion of the Christ. Because truth is, hundreds of men went through that type of agony. It was none of that. Jesus was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he wanted everybody to know he was quoting Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so, so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot at the lip. They shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They go grape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Dogs surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. This is hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented by the Romans. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This psalm was actually given to experts who said what we're reading about here is an execution. The writer of this is David, and David went through many trials, but David was next, never executed, and anything that happened here, David never experienced. This is somebody dying on a cross, and Jesus wanted everybody to know 
This is what David was talking about. This is where, this is where everything was moving toward. This is the Passover lamb. Amos 8 talks about darkness covering the earth. The Gospels tell us for three hours, God meted out justice on his son in a way we'll never comprehend and turned his back on him. And for the first time, the Godhead, Jesus, to the Father, knew not love. Staggering proposal, hard to imagine. And Jesus, in the three hours of darkness, on that cross, died spiritually. You're saying, Pastor Bob, what does that mean? He died spiritually. Well, spiritual death is a funny thing. I said, we're all eternal. We're all going to live forever. Adam was told, the day you sin, you'll surely die. Adam sinned, but he never died physically, but he died spiritually. He died spiritually in the sense there was now a barrier of entrance between him and God that he never experienced before. Every human being is born in Adam. We are all born on the wide road. We're all moving toward destruction. We've got to get on the narrow road to begin to commune with God. How do we do that? How does that happen? Well, we know it has to happen because for those of us who accepted Christ, it says we move from darkness to life. We who were alienated from God, who were led by Satan to do his will, We were born again or born from above. There was a transformation, and as many as received him, he gave the power to be called sons of God. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, to tell us die, and that was it, and that was Friday. Now, Sunday, again, we know a lot about it. Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb. You guys didn't come early today. First service people did, but that's okay. (laughs) Early to the tomb. I love that. You know why? Devotion. Curious. I'm amazed at Americans. Americans will spend weeks and months investigating how to buy a flat screen TV. They'll go to Costco, and then they'll calculate if they go to Delaware, and they'll pay tax. And then, you know, they'll they'll do all this about a flat screen TV. But when it comes to their eternal destination and the God who created them, they're just glad to spout cliches. Not Mary Magdalene. She comes early in the morning. No guy's there. Peter's not there. John's not there. The disciple whom Jesus loved, they're not there. You'd be there too if seven demons were cast out of you. I would like to see someone with seven demons. Maybe I wouldn't, but can you imagine? I mean, I wasn't the greatest guy in the world before I became a Christian, but seven demons? Must have been crazy. She's devoted. She comes. The stones rolled away. Not because Jesus had to get out. He could walk through walls so we could get in. Some of you have been in that tomb. She tells Peter and John, they come. Peter goes in, John goes in. Grave clothes are there. Two angels are there. She says, where is my Lord? She turns around, there's a gardener. She doesn't know it's Jesus. She said, where have they put my Lord? I'll go get him. And he says, Mary. And it's the word she knew when he was alive. And she says, Rabboni. And she's ready to throw her arms around him. He goes, no, 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 don't touch me yet. What he said really was, don't cling to me because I haven't ascended to my father, to my God and your God. He was seen by the 11, by over 500 witnesses, later by Paul. 
He gives them the great commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, the good news, baptize the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he launches the greatest movement in history with 11 men who were untrained with no resources of average education. The world's never been the same. And what you need to learn about Christianity is this. These 11 men didn't go and say, we learned something new, turn the other cheek. They didn't go and say, hey, believe this, because this is Christianity. It's not what they did. That was part of it later. See, the early church wasn't so dogmatic about what they believed. They were dogmatic that something happened Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Something of epic proportions. And that's what changed the world. Something happened that day. But what about Saturday? What happened on Saturday? Calvin, who was so brilliant I can barely read the guy, you know, said that Jesus descended to hell. Some people have that view. They look at First and Second Peter where it talks about he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Remember, you know, if you've seen the movie Noah, they weren't rock monsters. The Nephilim were these fallen angels. And Peter says, and I don't know how Peter got all this information, no one else. But he said, Jesus went and preached to the fallen spirits in prison. And Calvin said he went to hell. Others say, yeah, Jesus went to hell so you wouldn't. And I would disagree with that. Jesus died on a cross. So you wouldn't go to hell. He didn't go to hell so you wouldn't go to hell. It makes no sense. And then the idea of he went to, to hell and preached to these spirits. What did he preach? That he died? He hadn't been resurrected yet. Then we've got the problem where, where into the three hours of darkness he said, Father, he said it is finished, right? And he said, Father, into thy hands I command my spirit. He told the thief they would be in paradise that day. I believe Jesus went to heaven. Could have gone anywhere he wanted, but I think he went to heaven. Now, some people get confused where Mary, you know, he says, Mary, don't touch me. I've been going to my father like some secret thing had to happen. He said to Mary, don't cling to me. In other words, Mary, I've lived with you or among you for three years. John said that which we've touched and handled and taste concerning the word of life. We've had, Mary, it's not going to be that way anymore. I was a human being when I was around you. We could touch one another. I'm still here, Mary. It's just going to be a little different. Don't cling to me anymore, Mary, because it's going to be a different way. We know on Saturday, his physical body laid in the tomb. Because on Sunday, they found the grave clothes. See, what was going on in these three days had an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective. On Friday, the earthly perspective was this was a dark day. But heaven's perspective, it was a glorious day. The Passover lamb was slain. Access to God was renewed. From heaven's perspective, Saturday was wonderful. The sun was back in heaven. It was really bad on earth. John Ortberg said, so far as we know, there has only been one day in the last 2,000 years where literally not one person in the world Believe Jesus was alive. See, Saturday's a punch in the gut. It's the day after Christmas. It's the day after a funeral. It's the day after a diagnosis. It's the day after you pray where nothing changes. 
It's a belly of a whale. It's where all dreams die and all hope is gone. You know, I don't dream much. My girls dream every night and they talk all day about their dreams. I rarely dream. When I do dream, it's pretty bad. I have that recurring dream like the cops are chasing me, but you're in quicksand, you can't run. You ever have that one? And then I have this weird one where I wake up in a really bad neighborhood and I live above a gas station. I have no idea why I have this dream. But when I wake up, I look around, I, I see I'm in my bedroom, I'm like, it's just a dream. Saturday is when life is so horrific, you wake up and it's not a dream. Saturday is where horrific things are happening and you're alive. And if you live on this planet, you'll face Saturdays. The 11 disciples, the women, had put their hope in this man. For three years, a slice of time on this earth, there was a hope that life could be different. There was a hope that the rich wouldn't rule over the poor. That we wouldn't lord it over one another. When Jesus put kids on his lap, there was hope that they would matter, which they didn't at that time. When he sat with women, there was hope that men and women could walk side by side. When he talked about turning the other cheek and, Father, forgive them, they know what they do. There was hope that the human race could walk in love. There was hope that change could come. For a sliver of time. And like that, it was taken away on Saturday. It was gone forever. And you look at this and you think, why three days? If I was running the show, Jesus would have, ha ha, off the cross. Right? I mean, come on, that's great theater. Everybody's there, they get all the power. I would have came off the cross. Or maybe on Sunday, the stone that was rolled away would have been like a discus going through Pilate's residence. I mean, I would have done a crazy stuff. <laughs> Why three days? Well, the Jews had a strange idea. And by the way, this is tradition. This is, this is a small part of it. The Jews believed that it would take three days for the spirit to leave the body. That's why, when, that's why Jesus, I believe, delayed coming to Lazarus because he, he was showing without a doubt Lazarus has died, the spirit was gone, the whole, whole idea. That's a minuscule part of it. There's another part that was going on where Jesus was fulfilling the Passover, and then I believe he was fulfilling the Feast of First Fruits, which every so often, you know, Passover is lunar. That's why Easter moves around. It's a lunar f- feast. So you have, you have a Passover, and then the day after the Sabbath, of the Passover becomes the Feast of First Fruits. It just so happened that year, because Passover was on a Friday, the day after the Sabbath, Saturday, was Sunday, so they celebrated Passover on Friday, and Sunday, First Fruits. What's First Fruits? That's where they would give the grain offering. The priest would come out with the grain offering, and Paul wrote that Jesus was the first fruits of all those who would rise from the dead. And then there's the idea... That all through the Bible we see this idea of three days. Joshua waited three days at the Jordan before he brought them into the land. Uh, Abraham, when he went to sacrifice Isaac, there was a waiting period of three days. All through scripture there's these three-day periods. 
And I think the Bible sets us up with this idea that we're going to face Saturdays. But Sunday's coming. Here's, here's the problem I suffer with and so do you. These, these are things we're reading about. But nobody in here knew Sunday was coming. See, that, that's the rub. There's a garden we lost called Paradise long ago over here. And there's a new Jerusalem that's way over here, and it's coming. But right now we're in Saturday. We live in Saturday. We live in hope. Sunday's all about hope. Saturday's all about hopelessness. We live in this world where fiery darts come and we doubt whether God's involved in our lives. I had a woman at the first service who was gloriously saved and she was in recovery for 20 years and now she slipped back and we have the world, we have the flesh, we have the devil. We are living in Saturday. And that's why the great hope of the church is that Jesus is coming again. Because in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended, and and there's a reason for the ascension there, is that Corinthians tells us, in like manner, he shall return, and we will put on immortality. In Rome, you can visit the catacombs. Miles and miles of underground caverns where they would bury the dead, where Christians met because they were under heavy persecution in the early part of the first century. And there are many etchings in the catacombs. The number Two etching in all the catacombs is a figure of a whale or a great fish with the cross or Jesus rising. See, the early church knew about Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They, they put this together and it became the number two etching in the catacombs. Because they believed that if Jesus was alive, and he is, that one day he would quicken our mortal bodies. Here's the good news. The Bible says if we died with him, we will be raised with him. The question is, do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? I think the evidence is overwhelming. Overwhelming. But evidence isn't enough. It takes faith. It takes a holy God... Moving all this information from your mind 18 inches to your heart. That's not something I can do. And so I'm going to pray in a minute that you would make that decision. Someone brought you, um, they could walk you through the steps. We have leaders who can answer your questions here. But I'm going to pray the reality of this weekend changes your heart the way it did mine. And you would never be the same. Father, as we soak all this in, we thank you for Friday, we thank you for Saturday, we thank you for Sunday. Lord, we saw a one-woman act here on Friday that was so powerful. And yet, Lord, in this room right now, if we had the genius to recreate the stories of people sitting here, Lord, it would be just as wonderful. Because so many of us have passed from death to life. We're living in the light of eternity. And so, Lord, let us ponder this in a deep and meaningful way. And we pray in Jesus' name.